Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am super excited to have Dr. Amy Chapman on the program. Dr. Chapman is a research fellow at Teachers College Columbia University, where she uses qualitative approaches to understand how people define, develop, and change communities. She is also the director for the Collaborative for Spirituality in Education, a research hub of Teachers College, which examines spiritually supported schools and the impact of school culture on civic participation. Amy has a PhD in Educational Psychology and Education Technology from Michigan State's College of Education. She also holds three degrees from Boston College, an AB in History and Secondary Education, and AM in Developmental and Educational Psychology, and a CAES. I'm not exactly sure what that is, so you can tell us, Amy in religious education. Well, welcome to the program. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Marla. I'm oh, you're here. welcome. So what does CAES stand for? Certificate of Advanced Educational Specialization. Basically, they didn't quite know what to do with me. <laughs> I had education degrees. I needed the religious degrees. So that was a way for me to get Masters of Divinity credits nice. uh, honoring my, my educational expertise. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, let's just jump right in. Um, Your program, or you said there is a growing national understanding that success and well-being requires a whole child approach to education, social, emotional learning, mindfulness, character education, values, education, restorative practices, and other related programs seek to address the needs of children in a more holistic way. Wow, that is like what I am all about. I just love this. My kids went to the Waldorf school and they, um, you heard the whole child, um, you heard that word a lot, you know, and I was, I was um, happy, happy with what they did. But can you just elaborate a little bit about the spiritual needs of the schools and why you feel this is important? I'd be delighted. So I'll start with a tiny story. A couple of sure. years. Sure. So a couple of years ago, I started my life as a history teacher, high school history teacher. And a couple of years ago, somebody knew that I was a teacher, but didn't know what my content area was. And they were asking me about it. And they said, Did you teach, did you teach history? Did you teach social studies? And I said, No, I, I taught kids. Yes. And I think that's the framing. I think that's the, absolutely. I love that. So how do we bring these? Well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the practices. I love restorative practices and 
character educate, just all of it, mindfulness. What are some of the things that you're bringing into the schools now that you feel have been that have done so well and really helped helped not just the children but the teachers and everyone involved? It really is a whole school community that is supported and thrives with attention to the spiritual core. Um, We all have one that's innate. I know you had Dr. Lisa Miller on your podcast and Mm -hmm. and she is a basic scientist, meaning she knows and has done through her work, the analysis of how spirituality is an innate capacity and others have done that work as well. I'm an applied scientist. So I say, okay, we know that to be true. How does that work in our lives? And how does that change what our lives can be for the better? when we look at character education, at mindfulness, at restorative practices, they're all to the good. They're all also grounded in spirituality. Spirituality is not a set of beliefs. It's an augmented sense of awareness, of interconnection. The way that I like to talk about it is to say that I know that I matter to the universe and the universe matters to me. I have innately a sense of belonging. I matter. And the world around me matters to me. I have to care. I don't have an option. We are interconnected. And so when you look at restorative practices, for instance, where the whole premise is about bringing people back into right relationship, spirituality, that sense of interconnectedness, that sense of belongingness, that sense of I cannot escape that my well-being is bound up with yours. Of course, we need to look at restorative practices because we need to bring all of us back to wholeness. Of course, we need to pay attention to character education. We need to think about how we are the best version of ourselves and how we support that in others. Mindfulness brings us to the present, allows us to tap into, to be ready for that receptivity, right, of the interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. So all of those things are supported when spirituality is supported in schools. Um, I can talk about lots and lots of practices that I have done or that schools have done. I'm happy to do so because it's fun to talk about. But all of that is done through the culture of the school. It's not a curriculum. It's not a program. It's not something that I can mail you. Uh, or email you or whatever. I'm dating (laughs) myself. Uh, The culture has to be, I teach kids, not I teach history. The culture has to be transformative, not transactional. The culture has to be, I'm looking for you to be seen, known, and valued, to see you into being. And that's true if you're in preschool, It's true if you're in 12th grade, it's true if you're the school nurse, it's true if you're the principal, it's true if you're the guidance counselor, a paraprofessional, the librarian, whoever you are in the school, alumni parents included, and sometimes members of the community outside of the school building included, that we are seen, known, and valued as whole human beings. And so that reframing changes everything. It doesn't mean that we don't teach math or science or history or any of the other things. It doesn't mean that we don't have bell schedules or that we don't have snow days or recess or all of the other things. What it means is that when we do those things, 
It's that we are interconnected. It's that we have to care about each other. It's that we want to care. We can't help but caring. It's that we ourselves are valued. Even when we make choices that aren't in the best interest of ourselves or the community, we are still loved. We are still known. We are still valued, right? That is also transformative. And so on multiple levels, these schools look very different. And there are lots of ways in which we can talk about specific practices and how that is done, but it's also done in the hallways. It's done in the lunchroom. Right, exactly. Right? right? Um, it's done in the, in the very daily interactions that happen between everybody who exists in the ecosystem that is a school. Um, so we can talk about both and, like right. how would a school think about doing this big picture with the culture that a school has, right? Some schools are big and some are small, some are multilingual, some have really interesting diverse populations in lots of different ways. And some are really focused on kids who intend to come for a certain type of education. And all of that is wonderful. So how does a school do that from the culture and the place that it holds particularly, right? Um, while yes. honoring their mission, their goals, their family, their community. I don't know their community better than they do. It would be arrogant to think that I did. So how can they think about, which is why we talk about in our research that it's drivers of culture as opposed to something that I can hand you that you can take and go off to the races because where I'm sitting in my seat in New Jersey where you're sitting in your seat in Colorado, that may not be the same language, the same ritual, the same exposure to nature, right? If I were actually in my office in New York, the nature might look very different than it does where you are. Mm -hmm. But the way that we think about those things, the way we incorporate them, the way we talk about them, the importance that we assign to them, that can be in common and that supports our spirituality. Beautifully said. And I just, I just can't think about and stop thinking about indigenous cultures as you, as you talk about these things, the interconnectedness of, and the children helping the elders and the, and the, growing the food and the rituals and the ceremonies and just going back to that and they they've um have we have so much to learn from them so i know you've done a two-year study of 21 schools and where you found exactly what you just said that the culture is as essential to learning as the curriculum so these schools what what kind of schools opened their arms to this <laughs> and yeah so what where did you find these schools that were so open-hearted I guess I'll have to say but that were willing to take the time to to learn and and you would think everybody would want to do it but they were extremely generous and I would say also extremely humble uh, I, yes. I think if you asked anyone in these schools they would say oh we're not the experts in this no, no, we're, we're still learning what we're doing. Um, we found them because uh, Lisa Miller had written The Spiritual Child yes, and was sharing it with parents across the country. And she went into a large number of schools. And sometimes when she walked into schools, she would feel that they were more spiritually supportive. And in talking with parents and talking with students and talking with faculty and talking with leadership, that initial sense was affirmed. And so from that kind of purposeful sample, if we're using a research term perhaps, uh, <laughs> we reached out to 
a number of schools to say, this is what we'd like to do. We want to understand what it is that you do and how it works. And it's going to take a while. Yes. And are you, are you in on this with us? Like, this is a big deal. We're not just coming to give you a survey. And we had so many schools, right? 21 of them that were so gracious and kind and generous uh, to spend really a great amount of time with us, a great amount of time. The schools were peppered throughout the country uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast, plenty in the middle and in the South as well. And they were as a sample diverse. So in and of themselves, each school wasn't necessarily diverse, which is true in a lot of schools in the United States, but it is, as a sample, it was pretty diverse. So we had public schools, we had private schools, which were independent, and we had religiously based schools. We had big schools and small schools. We had suburban and urban schools. We are missing out on rural schools. So our next research will be making sure we're attentive to those. We had some schools that were single sex and some that were many that were co-ed. Um, and we had schools that were really in looking at spirituality in very different ways. And yet we still were able to find things that were in common. And so our, our method, what we did was we went into these schools and we did what we called site visits, which were really kind of um, an ethnographic observation and then also interviews. And we interviewed as many people as we could. So we interviewed the administration. We interviewed some students when we were allowed and when we had permission to do so. Faculty, staff, parents, alumni, boards, um, sometimes members of the community. And we also observed people in the school system in formal and informal settings. So in classes, on athletic fields, in the lunchroom, in the hallways. Um, I could go on and on and be descriptive, but... <laughs> And we also collected documents. So we asked schools to send us their mission statements, their handbooks. We asked them to compile cases so that people in the school, when asked, how do you support spirituality? They would write us a response. So it wasn't just what we observed, but what they themselves thought that they were doing. We took all of that data, which we're still analyzing because it's so much, because people were so generous um, and thought really deeply about this work. We took all of that research and said, what are the common factors that exist among these 21 schools that really are very different? What's going on here in common? And our research team, which was fairly large at the time, had really robust discussions. And not only about what it was that was going on, but how do we describe this phenomenon that we see? So it's one thing to, to go into a school and observe something and go to another school and say, this is something similar. The, the, same, the same principle is happening here. It's another thing altogether to name it so that someone who hasn't seen either of those schools understands what that is. Right. Uh, and that process took a long time. And we're still writing from that data because nobody else or very few other people are writing from this, writing into this space um, who aren't coming from a particular either faith-based point of view, which is great, or from a particular style of education, right? Your kids went to a Waldorf school, which is excellent. Mm -hmm. That's a particular way of thinking about education, which is very spiritually supportive. Um, and they just don't, don't think of it outside of that because they don't need to. That's, that's what right. they're doing and they do it really well. The same thing might be true of Montessori, right? Montessori education. They do that really well. They know what they're doing. They've thought deeply about it. Um, 
So we wanted to say across schools and we work with Waldorf schools and we work with Montessori schools, um, but across schools, what are these common elements that, that schools are, are attending to in a different and intentional way and taken together, we have this blueprint of what spiritually supportive schools do. So when schools have this constellation of drivers, of 11 drivers of spiritually supportive education, the school culture itself is spiritually supportive. So that at every place within a school building, students have the opportunity to have that part of them that is that interior spark, that sense of augmented awareness that comes when, if you've listened to Dr. Miller talk, the four regions of your brain are activated in tandem. When that augmented awareness can be brought into effect. It doesn't mean it's happening all the time. It doesn't mean that there aren't times in schools when that's not the, the way that people react because we're all human beings and we don't always operate from that place. Um, We know that they, these things exist and these 11 drivers exist in common and can be adopted, fostered intentionally in schools that are looking to be spiritually supportive, to become schools where spirituality is fostered. Um, and for my listeners, we'll have the, the circle in all those different, um, different things on it. So you can just look at it. So I, I'd love to, first of all, I love when you talk about relational spirituality and you say re relational spirituality is life-changing for students at these schools. They were seen, known, and valued for themselves and built meaningful relationships with faculty and staff. Through these relationships, students can transcend diverse, challenging circumstances and flourish. First of all, how not only how wonderful it is in the school, but for life, the things that they learn for life and to build that inner strength to help them when, you know, times, times really get tough. Do you have any stories for us? Like maybe, I, yeah, just, just a story about a child or a group of children that you've I'd love to tell one from my own teaching experience, if that's great. It. Absolutely. Okay. So when I was teaching, so I did, um, I taught kids, but when they were in my classroom, they were there to learn social studies uh, or, <laughs> um, at a high school level. So I taught freshmen, I taught juniors, and I taught seniors um, in Massachusetts. And my first year teaching, I had honors level freshmen. So kids who were coming in who were, academically gifted or um, who just had a love of academics. Some of them just had done very well in school before. It was an interesting constellation of, of kids. Anyway, you could probably imagine what an honors class looks mm -hmm. I also taught what our school called level two kids in uh, junior, junior year history, which was a required course. And those classes were smaller because level two was the class where if we're not sure where to put you and you're not in an honors class and you're not in a college prep class, we're going to put you in level two. And I think level two was meant to convey that, oh, we're welcome, that nothing was wrong with you um, and nothing was wrong with them. 
but it meant that it, it kind of felt sometimes that they were misfits. That was their perception, not mine. I really liked teaching that class. <laughs> I really did. Um, I taught it every year I was teaching, sometimes two sections of it. So what happened was it was this really interesting grouping of students, some of whom had learning difficulties, some of whom were new to the United States, some of whom didn't speak English fluently, um, some of whom just had been labeled by the school as students who were difficult. And so I came into that class and thought, okay, well, we need to rethink this because obviously you know, they're almost at the end of formal education in the United States. Something hasn't been working for them here for this right. amount of time to be landing in this school. So let's think about that. Okay. That's the setup to look, to intro to this class. Maybe a third of the way into the year, four of the students in my level two class, which by the way, was half of the class. So there were nine students in this class that year came into my freshman honors, one of my freshman honors history classes. And they said, Ms. Chapman, we need to be in here right now. I said, okay, do you want to tell me why? And they said, yep, if we're not, we have a study hall right now. We have a free period. If we're not in here, we're going to get into trouble. We're going to do something dangerous. I said, okay, there's plenty of room over there. You're welcome to have a seat. You can use the paper or pens or whatever's on my desk back there, whatever you want to do. You're welcome to stay. For two years. That became the thing. Whenever those students in that class, and of course this kind of caught on. Yes. They would come to this world history class, which by the way, was a required course for freshmen. So they had already taken it. So they uh, occasionally then would pipe up and say, wait, that's not, no, wait, what? You're teaching them that? <laughs> um, and in some ways they served almost as TAs. So if I needed copies made or we were passing out things or we were drawing or we had group work, but sometimes they just, most of the time they just sat in the back and did their, whatever they wanted, um, right. you know, because they were human beings and they had said they had this need. And that was a very low threshold need. Of course you can sit in my room. Of course we can make that work. Um, but it was the first time, I mean, I remember, and I really loved the school that I taught in. I really loved my department. I wouldn't fault any of them for anything. They were great, great colleagues, great people. But a lot of the kids in my class had a really bad reputation outside of my room because they had made choices that objectively probably weren't the wisest, right? Breaking windows, mm. getting into physical fights, all sorts of things. And then they had, instead of somebody sitting down and saying, what was that about? And how can we not go down that road again? They had said, okay, so you get detention or you get suspended or you get arrested and we're gonna watch you and we're gonna label you and we're gonna assume that exactly. you're a bad kid, right? Capital letters, bad kid. There are no bad people. That's not a thing, right? People make choices that aren't good for themselves or the community, for sure. But there aren't any bad people. Okay, that's, you're gonna get comments on that, but that's how I feel. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> um, and so for two years, they sat in the back of my room and I had the student, the one who vocalized it, right? That first day came and said, Ms. Chapman, we're gonna get into trouble if we're not in here. She is now a special education teacher in that district with a master's degree. 
She would never have imagined that future for herself. And she couldn't be better at that job. And you know why I know? I still talk to her. Yes. Um, and that's really what it's about for me. And I think of her often um, when, when we talk about this work. Because that's not, I imagine that if there are teachers who are listening to this, that resonates. Yes. As teachers, we've had those students. Maybe they're not as clearly articulate about what they need. But we've had those students who need us to be their cheerleaders, who need us to be in their corner, who need to look them in the eye and say, I get that you're a person. You're not an entry in a grade book. You're not a person I'm writing a recommendation for for college. You're not a number. You're not a grade. You're not annoying. You're not my favorite. You're a person. Yes. And I think and I hope that everybody as a student had that experience, too, of a teacher who saw them into being. Right. I can tell you about my teachers who did that. And I, I was lucky enough to have more than one. Spiritually supportive schools, it's not the one-off teacher who makes this transformative difference for you. It's that the whole school is looking to see you into being. And again, this makes it sound like it's a fairy tale because we're not perfect human beings. It doesn't happen at every moment, but that's our default. That's what we come back to. When we regress to the mean, that's what it is. Right? Um, yeah. That's beautiful. It's, I interviewed just the other day, Lacey Borgo, and she's a, I guess you would call her a, a spiritual counselor. And she works a lot at the Haven House for, for children or families that are homeless or, you know, are having a tough go of it. And Lacey, she likes to talk about listening to the, um, listening them to life you know, just to give them space and time and just listen. And she had one little boy who was not allowed in any of the classrooms because he'd gotten in so much trouble. So her his punishment was to have lunch with her <laughs> and for the whole school year. And she never said much, but she just listened and he started to open up and they, this beautiful relationship, you know, started and it just, just changed everything. Wow, what a story. That's incredible. And yet, of course, that's what happened. In some ways, of course. Of course, of course, that's what happened. I love that. Um, saw them into being. Yeah. That's a it's a line kids. from our data. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're kids. Wow, do you have any other lines like that? <laughs> oh, do I have any other lines? <laughs> Um, I'm going to have to think, I am going to have to think, um, I think I'll think on it. I don't know yeah. if I have other lines like that. And again, that's borrowed from our, our data. Um, that's okay. I was just, I was just wondering, I just love things no. like that. So no. what, what would you like to say to parents or caregivers to, um, things that you've incorporated into the schools or that the what you've seen in the culture you've you've manifested into the cultures and how someone could bring that into their into their home life could you give a couple of examples i think that's a lovely question i yes i can um although i think the possibilities are are endless, endless. <laughs> i think i think one thing is 
sort of priming the pump, right? So most people don't arrive at school until they're five in this country anyway. And maybe that's three in some schools. Maybe it's a little bit younger. But parents are the first educators of their children, right? And so if there's an opportunity to cultivate wonder, to cultivate awe, to cultivate reverence, I would say, try to do that when you can. Uh, I'm not a parent. My sister is a parent of young children uh, with whom I spend a lot of time. And so I know both the exhaustion that happens when you are a parent and also that there's not a pause. They're just constantly on. And so I think looking for wonder and awe and reverence at every moment of every day is insane if you haven't had a shower or you haven't had a cup of coffee or you haven't had sleep. Right. Right. But it occurred to me, maybe, I don't know, a few years ago, my younger nephew, well, my older nephew did this too, but my younger nephew kept asking me why, why? And that's all he would say, why? And I realized it wasn't that he wanted some deep philosophical answer. It's that he didn't know how to put together a question beyond that. And so what he was really asking was, please tell me more about that. I'm curious. I want to know, but I don't know yet. So please help me. And that really reframed because why, like I would say a response and he would say why again. And then I would say, and it was that, I don't know, probably everybody who's been around little children has had that point. Why, why, why? Right. And you get to, it just is the way it is. And then I thought, no, he's just asking me to, to explain what's going on or to have a conversation with him about what's going on. And that really opened things up for, I mean, we've had a great relationship forever, but it was like, oh, he wants to sit and have a conversation with me about this, but he can only say one or two words as a sentence. He was maybe 18 months, two years old at the time. So I think that, right. Um, I think lots of those teachable moments that happen when you're cooking with your kids or you're outside playing and there's a butterfly that goes by or a bird or, you know, something that happens and somebody, you know, one of your kids says, oh, I wonder what they're thinking about. Right. Well, what are they thinking about? What do you think they're thinking about? Right. And I think parents do that naturally. And just to be more attentive and present to that kind of a thing. Um, my nephews have been very receptive to yoga and meditation, even from four years old. And we have found in schools that, I mean, by no means are those the only practices that one can do. By no means. Um, But making space for quiet, for intentional movement, for um, ritual. So, whether that's nightly, right? Families who pray together or who pray at bedtime. Um, my younger nephew at, at four will lead his family in meditation uh, and do it well, right? Which just takes practice. And the the notion that, well, why couldn't you at four lead us in meditation? Right. Why couldn't you do right. that? Of course you can. We can help you, but of course you can do that, right? Um, with the supports that kids need. So in the same way that my nephew needs a stool to wash his hands because he's not quite tall enough to reach the sink without the stool, maybe he needs some supports in order to be able to lead meditation, but he can do it, right? With those. Yes. Um, 
Okay. So, so though I would say all of that constellation of things, I alluded there to ritual. So if that's your nightly prayers or prayers at meals or, or prayers throughout the day, whatever that kind of thing looks like, or you have a ritualized meditation practice or rituals around events. So if you have a birth in the family, how do you talk about that? How do you celebrate that? What do you, what are you doing around that? Um, likewise, if you have a death in the family, so we've, we've experienced death a lot in the last couple of years collectively as a society, um, but also in my family. And so how do you, um, and I've worked with families for a really long time at this point. So once I left teaching and did, uh, I've been working with families a lot and talking about those harder things in life sometimes gets us stuck because sometimes we don't know how to talk about them to ourselves, much less how to talk exactly. about them with little kids. Um, but little kids wonder about those too. And so, um, and I've been noticing um, in my own family how that needs to just be bite size, right? So we talk about um, death or dying or sickness and they, they dictate the pace of that. So then maybe they wanna talk about it for two minutes. Okay, they, it's clear to me when they're done talking about it and I don't right. push the envelope, right? But then it makes it okay to talk about. Exactly, it's open. And we can bring that into, this is the wider part of life. And also um, we, are, we are spiritual beings, right? There is a life beyond what, you know, we have that conversation. Um, schools, in our study made time for transcendent practices. And I think families can do that too. And these really ranged. So there were schools who had drum circles, schools who did a lot with dance, schools who did a lot with music, um, schools who did a lot with silence. There were, there were a number of schools in our study who for a period of time every day, five minutes, 10 minutes, the entire school was in silence. And for younger students, there was scaffolding around that. So when we're sitting in silence, what are we doing? What are we thinking? How are we being, right? And I think all of that could, could happen in the context of families. And also what are your transcendent practices? What exactly. puts you into relationship with the creative force, the divine, whatever you wanna call that being or force or whatever. Um, what do you do as a family? And it could be more than just your nuclear family. That could be your community family or, you know, your extended family, of course. What is it that you do? So maybe it is important for you to play music together or to dance in the kitchen or to, you know, um, draw together. Um, my, one of my favorite examples is everybody um, engaging in nature walks and being very intentional about the silent portion of that and then the dialogue portion of that. So we're allowed to give ourselves time to wonder in community, in silence, but then also we can break that silence together and talk about and process what we've been going through. So what have we seen? What have we heard? What have we smelled? What have we noticed? And what does that make us feel? And how are we connect? Are we connected to these things, right? Um, it also make, reminds me of um, some indigenous cultures that do that with dreams. The first thing in the morning, they sit in a circle with, with the children too and talk about, because many believe that the dreams are 
I kind of believe this too sometimes <laughs> that the dreams are more real than real, right? This is kind of our, this is our story. This is on stage and then the dreams. And, and that's just such a beautiful practice too. And as you say, for the, the parent, the teacher, the caregiver, to, for the children to see us incorporating these things in our, in our own personal lives. It's just, oh, Amy, I just love, I just love what you're doing. So this has had to change you. I mean, you, when you walk away from children and experience, experiencing wonder and awe and it just, and, you know, it's contagious. We, we all know that. It's almost like a puppy, you know. How has this, how has this work changed Amy Chapman? Hmm. So in some ways I've been doing this work a long time. So the yes. change happened over time, right? Mm. I think, um, I think my first response is that it's made me much more open as a person. So I, I was, uh, as an adolescent myself, very rigidly religious. I'm still pretty religious. I'm not at all rigid about it. Yes. And that has happened in working with children. I realized um, very early on. So I worked with adolescents. Our high school had a preschool for the students in the high school uh, and their children. And then when I started working with families, our program started in preschool. And when I was having a bad day, I just needed to sit in the preschool for a little while. And that I, it, it was very clear, very fast for me that really young children don't put up the barriers to spirituality that some of the rest of us have put up. And there's lots of reasons why we do that. I get that. But a three-year-old will pray for anything, will wonder about anything, will feel a sense of connection with the people who are around them in a way where there just is no, um, let me put it this way. You brought up relational spirituality before, and there's lots of beautiful definitions about it, but it's the sacredness that exists between us. Yes. That's palpably real. Like little kids know that to be true in their deepest heart without needing to be told. And they believe it in a way that older kids aren't, Maybe they deeply believe it, but it's harder to get them to articulate it because it's a scary thing, right? It's a vulnerable thing. And so I think that helped me to realize in myself how I needed to be more open and how I needed to be. In some ways, those kids were a conduit for me of seeing the divine, of seeing spirituality made visible. And it helped me to see and to realize and to grow into being that for other people when I can on my best days. Yes. Not saying I do that consistently by <laughs> no means. But bringing out your inner child. Yes. That innocence of when you were that young and I, I believe that the very young do those things you just mentioned not to mention to talk talking about 
seeing spirit, deceased loved ones, and talking about past lives and choosing parents and and all of those things. And because they're they're so close to the source still. They have one foot in and one foot out. And to just cherish and validate and ask questions and and let let these children, you know, lead the way. They're they're they are our greatest teachers, I believe. Yeah. There's such an honesty about it, right? There's yeah. no there's no guile. Right. There's no, I think this is how someone expects me to be. I just am. Yes. I, I am. am. Sometimes with my very big feelings, but I am, right? And it's I think there's a almost an invitation there. God. Yes. I, I love that. Such an invitation. Oh, wow. Well, Amy, we need to wrap it up, but thank you so much for coming on the show. This has just been an honor. And do you have anything that you'd like to like to share um, that I haven't that I haven't asked you? Any words of wisdom? Or you've had a lot of those, but oh, well, that's kind. I appreciate. It. I so appreciate the time and the conversation. And I Absolutely. think I would say in every hat that I've worn, and every conversation that I've had where spirituality is part of the part of what we're talking about there tends to be someone who says oh that's I'm not good enough for that that's not me and it's one of those things where you kind of whisper it or you kind of feel like oh I can't yourself yeah I can't I can't get there I can't do that I'm not worthy And I would say in my life, that is the thing that hurts me the most because it's not true. It's part, it's innately part of all of us and it's open and available to all of us. If we can find spaces where we and others can nourish it because every single person is equally, uniquely made, full of dignity, inherent worth. And we should cultivate the space, right? All of us as a collective where nobody ever feels like they're outside of that spiritual connection, right? So I'll, the last thing I'll say, maybe my one great line, my liberation is bound up in yours. I can't be truly free unless you too are truly free. And for me, that means spiritual well-being, a spiritual freedom, right? And so I have to work for that for you because otherwise I cannot be spiritually free. And I think that's why it hurts me so much when people feel like they're outside of that or they can't access that part of themselves. But it's also my greatest joy in my work because we can create those spaces in schools, but well beyond schools, in the civic space, in our homes, in our libraries, in our, you know, at the town pool on the ball field, right? Um, And so it's, that gives me joy. It gives me hope. And it gives me peace, to be honest. So there you, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, um, how would they, how would they do that? They absolutely should reach out to me and I'd be delighted 
Um, they can find us, the Collaborative for Spirituality and Education at our website, which maybe you can link on your podcast. Sure, but absolutely. Super speedy at spiritualityandeducation.org. Not super speedy. That's a pretty easy URL. Um, if they want to reach out to me particularly, the easiest email perhaps to remember is Amy Chapman, all lowercase, all put together at spiritualityandeducation.org. You're also welcome to share my Columbia email. Yes. And if you find it easy to find people on social media, I'm at chatmab, C-H-A-P-M-A-A-B on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And it will all be in our show notes so people can look at that. But please do find me. Um, we're, we, we are, the collaborative is the, that's the important word in our name, uh, as yes. much as spirituality, as much as education. So please do reach out and find us. Um, we're glad to add you to our mailing list. We do webinars, we do conferences, we do professional development. Um, if we can support the work that you're doing or answer questions or support you in any way, we'd really like to do that. So please do not be a stranger and reach out. <laughs> wonderful well thank you so much and um you stay warm there like i'll i'll try to do here (laughs) yes stay safe and warm where you are and it's been a pleasure yes have a great day thank you same to you thank you so much for listening in today If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.